<clears throat> so our reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, reading from verses 12 through to 36, and you'll find that on page 272 of the Church Bibles, and it's in your service sheets and probably on the screen as well. I will be reading uh, up to verse 26, and then Polly will come and read the remainder. So 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest that, whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled, and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I will, I will take it by force. This sin of the young, man, the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe, and took it to him when, he went up, when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. Continuing from verse 27. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestors out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling 
Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves of the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare, only to destroy your sight and sap your strength. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons? Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before me, before my appointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, Appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Well, thank you very much, uh, John and Polly, for reading that rather extended reading for us. Let's pray for God's word to speak clearly to us. We pray, Father, for uh, that gift of your word being a light to our paths and a light, a lamp to our feet, that you'd lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you can cast your mind back to a couple of years to the end of COVID, and I wonder if you recall the talk of a great reset in society. People saw the return to normal life as a chance to reevaluate life personally and communally, and the talk of reset was hopeful and a good thing, I think, to engaging. Uh, We certainly did our fair share of vision revision within the church family. In the last week, we've had parliamentarians undergoing disciplinary procedures on our side of the Atlantic and federal charges served on a former president the other side of the Atlantic. And whichever side of the debates you might happen to come down on, that there is any discussion at all indicates that despite the bright new day that we hope for, we are probably not so very different from how we were before. Uh, And I'm not suggesting that Christians should be rubbing their hands at scandal amongst politicians. Most week, the church treats us to its own version of leadership scandals. We Christians are not exempt from scrutiny. The Bible knows us better than we know ourselves in its portrait of humanity, inside and outside the people of God. And our little section in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is a case in point. I've lost one Bible on the floor. Luckily, there's a second one up here, so I can locate one for us to, for me to, to look at. It's page 272 in the church Bibles, or you should have it on the sheet. 
but we'll often have um, great hopes for our leaders, but you get a portrait of flawed leadership in Israel in this little section of the Bible, uh, right at the core of Israel's life. Um, We have great hopes for our leaders, but you think about it, a stream can rise no higher than its source. If we look for a solution to humanity's problems amongst human beings, any other human being will never normally be the answer. They'll only be part of the problem, if you think about it. And that's really where the spotlight shines in this section of um, 1 Samuel. I heard of one vicar who did an annual meeting talk after COVID for his church, and his talk had six or seven headings. So you get off very light here when I do an annual church meeting uh, vicar's talk, minister's report. There's a silly story about a reunion dinner for students from Yale, where the guest speaker had a four-point talk, and his first point began with why, 20 minutes on youthfulness, and everybody was 20 minutes older by the end of that first point. Then there was 10 minutes on activeness, YA, and then he launched into a third point on liveliness, at which point someone turned to their neighbor and said, aren't you glad that we didn't go to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Anyway, for the great reset, this friend of mine, Will, had uh, six or seven points in his church meeting, and he covered everything, all the areas of concern that the church had to address. And then when they were all feeling about this big by the end of it and feeling the weight of it all, he moved on to one final area of concern, just a short word. He said, seventh heading, me, which was not meant to be a major confession of some egregious wrongdoing on his part, but it was really helpful that he said it. The vicar is always part of the problem in any church life. In everyday church life, God only has sinful human beings that he can use. And if we place our trust in any human leadership, we will always be disappointed. Now, those lessons are very clear in this chapter. My guess is that we always need that reminder, which is why we happen to come to this passage today. Let's look first at Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12, I think, is a great summary verse. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. So Hannah had been praying sincerely in the tabernacle, but the organized religion there was a sham. Must have been a typical scene, I suppose. A worshiper is cooking their portion of meat for the family meal after a sacrifice. Up comes the priest's acolyte with their infamous three-pronged barbecue fork plunges the fork in the pot or cauldron or whatever, and whatever comes out on the fork, sorry, that goes to the priests. They already had in the law the breast portion and the right leg set apart for caring for the priests and those working in the tabernacle. This was just a bonus, this fork prodding that they were doing. In fact, even before the fat portions were given to God, the priest's servants would come demanding uncooked cuts from the worshippers. And if you told them that the Lord should have his portion first, they resorted to threats and aggro to take the raw meat by force. So that was the sort of thing that was going on. More than that religious breach, there was a moral lapse as well. Everybody knew all about it. Hophni and Phinehas had sexual relationships with the women who tended the tabernacle. So that's some reverse. They had no regard for the Lord. 
literally, they did not know Yahweh, the spiritual leaders. What a tragedy. It's tantamount what they were doing to turning the tabernacle into a brothel. Verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. That wasn't the first time or the last time this sort of thing had happened amongst God's people. Spiritual influence so easily transforms itself into abuse and power play and sexual manipulation. Maybe, in fact, this is the silver lining of the awful black clouds in the many recent instances of abuse in the church, that we are at least now more alert to the wrong behavior than we were. I've made a pact with myself not to roll my eyes at extra work. It always involves extra work to have good practice in this area um, in church life, in the whole safeguarding area. We need to do that sort of work to create a safe culture for everybody's sake. But let's move on to a subtler form of this corruption of leadership because it's clear that Hophni and Phinehas are partly as they are because of Eli. So let's consider him for a bit. And this is a rather chilling text, 1 Samuel 2, for Father's Day, when we are hardwired to big it up for fathers. The sort of general message of Father's Day is fathers are fantastic. Well, maybe they sometimes are, but often in the Bible, the sins of the fathers are visited on the children. Eli, up until now, may have been portrayed as a good man. In this section, it's clear that he is good, but weak. So he gives a necessary rebuke. Let me read from verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Which is a hair-curling phrase, that last little bit there, isn't it? So much had they resisted God and spurned Eli's warnings that the time came when God gave them over to their sins and they could not repent. God confirmed their choice and gave them what they wanted, even after a tear-stained appeal from Eli. I said Eli was good. He had moral categories in his life, didn't he? He had the well-aimed moral rebuke in his arsenal. Remember how he'd actually rebuked Hannah for drunkenness as he perceived it in the Lord's tabernacle, as if he'd seen drunkenness amongst the Lord's people right at the heart of their worship. So he had a rebuke there earlier on in the book, and here he rebukes his own children. He's willing to call sin, sin, where it's sometimes hardest to do that in a family member. How many of us pull back from that? I wonder, Eli didn't hold back from it. He was a good man, good, but weak. And we know that because at this point in the storyline, another character enters the drama, an unnamed man of God with a verdict from God himself in the form of a prophecy 
about an end to Eli's priesthood. This is from verse 27 onwards. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Perhaps you know that that last bit there, that verse was written on a scrap of paper by a physio to encourage the Olympic runner Eric Liddell. The physio was saying, look, Eric, you have put God first, and he honors those who honor him, which is true. It's an encouraging verse. But actually the hard edge of the verse is that those who despise God, God will disdain. Even Eli, it seems. God had given him great privilege selecting his ancestor Aaron, brother of Moses, and then the family's descendants, to be set apart as priests. He promised an enduring priesthood to that one family. But the promise wasn't unconditional. Early on, there'd actually been Levites and priests who had been removed from office for messing around with the requirements of Israel's worship. God had made his requirements absolutely clear. And it wasn't enough for Eli to wring his hands at his son's disobedience. They should have been removed from their positions. So you see the strength of the language God uses to describe Eli's behavior. He's scorning God's sacrifices. You might say, well, the sons were the actual culprits, weren't they? But by letting them do it, he is guilty by association. Another label. He's honoring his sons more than he really honors God. QED, what's the proof of it all? He's despising God. 1 Samuel 2 verse 30. So corrupt leadership isn't just about blatant immorality, the behavior of Hophni and Phinehas. It's also about the failure of others to discipline and properly correct the immorality. Eli's indulgence of his sons was also wrong. Note to self, in a denomination where many, including leaders who should know better, are turning away from the standards of God's word. It isn't okay for us to bury our heads in the sand and say to ourselves, well, I would never do that. Of course, there's a legitimate debate about how best to go about calling others to honor God and his word. That's what we need to do. There's a debate about how best to go about that. I don't think um, honoring God by calling on others to honor his word and his standards necessarily looks the same for everyone. It won't be appropriate for everyone to fight this battle in exactly the same way. It might be appropriate for one person to write a strongly worded letter to an archdeacon, 
but wrong for somebody else to take the same tone. Some people may carry on the battle best on their knees by praying. Some people will fight by putting backbone and courage into the minister to keep going in principled resistance. There are lots of different ways we can do this, but that we are all called to honor God above everyone else is not in doubt. And we mustn't sit idly by and allow others to dishonor him as if that's fine. Okay, two little snapshots of corrupt leadership, the father and the sons in Eli's family. But is there no good news in today's section? Everybody's turned up in church wanting some sort of encouragement. Well, I think there are shafts of light in the darkness of this chapter. I think the mentions of little Samuel growing up are part of it. Our final verse last week, chapter 2, verse 11, told us, the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Uh, Fast forward to verse 18. This is in our reading. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. And that very cute image of mum coming back each year with the next size up in ephods for the boy. And Eli, um, maybe discouraged about his own family, busy praying for Hannah and Elkanah and God answering his prayers with more children. So clearly it isn't all bad news in Israel. Meanwhile, at the end of verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Fast forward again to verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. He'll grow up to be a giant in Israel. Even so, as a leader, he was still part of the problem, actually. Like Eli, he struggled to pass on that leadership to his sons, we'll discover later on in the book. But still, this is obviously an encouragement, is it not? No situation is so dark that one person or one family can't make a difference. No one is too young to start serving him. Let that influence the way you pray for All Saints kids. It was good to do that uh, earlier on in the service. I mentioned the man man of God with his word from God. That's another sign that God is still continuing to guard and protect his people in dark days. He has a plan for them which can't be derailed even by sin amongst human leaders. You get these funny walk-on parts given to the occasional man of God figures in 1 and 2 Samuel. These people that just breeze in, we don't really know much about them. The man of God turns up and brings a message from God which tells anyone who's really listening that God is still speaking. He's still on the throne. He holds the future. Evil will not have the last word. And don't we need that kind of encouragement today? Well, God gave that message to his people in Samuel's day. So I mentioned shafts of light, but I think the most obvious shaft of light comes in a promise in verse 35. It says this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Now, we get used to reading the Bible in smallish chunks, 24 verses today, and even that felt long, didn't it? But of course, we're expected to read all of 1 and 2 Samuel. 
We're supposed to read on to much later in the story when this promise, verse 35, is fulfilled in the appointment of a new line in the priestly family with Zadok as the high priest. And who's the anointed one that Zadok serves under? It's King David. So that's where this story is heading. Even in the dark days, God has a plan and purpose. Only in fact, the story is meant to travel even further, isn't it? In the Old Testament, even when things were working well, the human leaders were still flawed. And that's one reason why, if you're aware of this, there was a sort of separation of powers that operated. You had kings and priests, and they were separate forms of leadership. And they answered to a third strand of leadership, prophets. All those different strands of leadership only came together in one leader who was much more than humor, who was out of this world, Jesus, king, priest, and prophet in one amazing person. And we're seeing a hint about him in our chapter today. Throughout the Old Testament, every flawed leader, we are meant to be looking forward to him, the perfect ruler. He's supremely the one who honored his heavenly father perfectly, never living off God's people like the scoundrels in our chapter, but giving himself out of obedience to God, sacrificing himself for us, as we're going to remember at communion. He honored his father, and his father in heaven absolutely honored him, raising him from the dead, giving him the top spot in the universe. So that's why a church list of concerns, if we're trying a reset, um, that's why it matters to declare honestly we're part of the problem. It's why when there's leadership meltdowns in society uh, beyond the, the boundaries of the church, again, our eyes should be taken off ourselves as the solution to the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably know how in children's groups in churches, the children cotton on very quickly that Jesus is the answer to every single question. I heard about one teacher who once asked her group who she was describing. I'm, I'm small and furry, she said. I eat nuts, and I've got a big, bushy tail. And then she overheard one child saying, I know the answer has got to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Now, don't be surprised that we find Jesus in this chapter. He is everywhere in the Old Testament because he is central in God's plans and purposes for the world. No other leader has that status. On Father's Day, let me say, he is the male role model above all others that we need. God's given him, Jesus, the name that's above every name, and rightly so. I want to just ask, does he have that place in your heart? After all that he has done, can there be any doubt that he is the best leader for us? Let's pray together. We thank you for exalting your son, Jesus Christ, and giving him the name that's above every name. And we are jealous for his honor and glory this morning, Heavenly Father, in the church 
and indeed throughout the world, that every knee may bow to him. We pray you'd begin that work with us, help us to bow to him, uh, carry that work on more and more widely in the church, that he would be honored and obeyed and worshipped and adored, and uh, speed on that day when all your great plans and purposes for the world will be fulfilled as he returns and every knee bows before him and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. We pray it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.